Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. I, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, nor produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated. Well, if you've been with us, you know that Habakkuk's encounter with God has transformed him. And transformation, that's the purpose for which God redeems his elect. As Paul says in Romans, those to whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's our destiny. Well, this is what we've been witnessing as we have followed Habakkuk on his search for answers. Answers graciously granted through dialogues with God, and it culminates with a dramatic vision of God's absolute sovereign power and his overwhelming glory. He is the divine warrior who comes to save his people and destroy his enemies with their own devices. Well, the prophet began this journey, if you'll recall, in anxious despair over Judah's wickedness and idolatry. But such infidelity was nothing new. Judah's history was stained with periods of apostasy and idolatry under the leadership of wicked kings. And when godly kings would take the throne, most of them failed to destroy all of the high places of worship. That's a common refrain that we read in the Old Testament, that those godly kings, though they sought the Lord and though they sought to bring the people to proper worship, they failed to rid the nation of all the high places. So Judah, throughout her history, vacillated between faithfulness and infidelity. However, the crisis point came sometime earlier than Habakkuk's day under the long reign of wicked King Manasseh. 2 Kings 21 describes how he led Judah not just into idolatry, but into radical idolatry. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He erected pagan altars in the temple where God says, my name resides. He practiced sorcery. He consulted fortune tellers. He sought direction through divination. He slaughtered multitudes of innocent people, the scripture says, and he even sacrificed his own son to the fires of Moloch. This was a wicked, wicked man. And the text says that under Manasseh's reign, Judah was even more wicked than the pagan nations. So a line had been crossed among the people of God. Devastating judgment was coming. And though Manasseh, he repents at the end of his life, his son Amon takes the throne and he doubles down on the wicked practices of his father. So the die was cast. Judgment is coming and it cannot be averted. 
But then good King Josiah came to power, and his reforms were the most thorough in Judah's history. He destroyed all the high places. He restored the temple. He resumed worship of God as prescribed by the law. For 31 years, there was righteousness prevailing in Judah. His reforms were as thorough and far-reaching as Manasseh's apostasy was deep and pervasive. These are extremes, you see. But after Josiah's death, Judah returned to wallow in the mire. She wasted no time in resuming the practices that God considered more wicked than those of the nations. And so as we've seen, Habakkuk was mistaken to presume that Judah was more righteous than Babylon. (laughs) She was not. Well, this is the context then in which Habakkuk's journey begins. He can't understand how the godly reforms of Josiah so, so quickly collapsed into the evil, idolatrous ways of Manasseh. Why would the Lord bring about such wondrous reforms only to see them spurned in favor of the deepest depravity? And even worse, as he witnessed the downward spiral, it seems to him as though God just didn't care. I mean, can you see why the prophet was so baffled? I see Habakkuk as truly the everyman. He's us. He's humanity. We see Habakkuk struggle with something that we all struggle with. I mean, who among us has never been anxious about the state of affairs in the world? Who among us has never been perplexed by the way circumstances seem to unfold? Who among us has never struggled to understand God's purpose? And who of us has never wondered how the Lord could possibly work all things together for good in a world of such sin and rebellion? These are things that have perplexed us. And the answers, of course, are found in the Word of God. But in any case, as the prophet seeks to answer his perplexing questions, God's initial response, as you recall, left him even more bewildered. Habakkuk needed a broader perspective. He needed a renewing in his thinking. He needed a better grasp of the glory and wonder of our holy God. And that's what his encounter with God provides. And so the prophet, we are told, sees the divine warrior coming in earth-shattering power, defeating the enemies of his people to save his people. And it's an encounter that humbles him and brings him to the brink of death. He's left speechless, we're told. His body trembles and collapses in awe. But the one who falls at this wondrous revelation is a changed man. The Lord has him make a permanent record of this ordeal as a witness against the wicked and as an admonition to the faithful. The prophet becomes a godly example then for us to follow. The Lord intends for his people to learn from Habakkuk's arduous journey, a journey from trepidation to trust, from despair to hope, from anxiety to rest, from the fear of men to the fear of God. That was his journey. And so Habakkuk is not the man he once was. When he first began crying out to the Lord, he was in an agitated state, an emotional state of despair. He was beside himself as he cried out to God over Judah's wickedness and the Lord's apparent apathy. And his anxiety, again, only intensified whenever God told him how he intended to address Judah's sin. 
And so the frantic prophet's emotional and physical trauma reaches a climax when he sees this vision of the sovereign Lord coming in judgment and salvation. And that's when he collapses in silence because Habakkuk has come to the end of himself. There is nothing more to be said. There is nothing anyone can do to avert the coming disaster. And so he says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. A more literal rendering of the Hebrew word that's translated yet in our text is because. And I think the issue here is the prophet is saying, I will quietly await for Babylon's demise as God promised because he has assured me that once the inevitable chastening of Judah is complete, he will come in power, mighty power to save his people and exact judgment upon our oppressors. So his faith and his confidence in God is what allows him to quietly wait for the day of deliverance. The only reasonable response is to settle down then and accept God's dealings with us as good and righteous. And so with the assurance of God's future deliverance, the prophet commits himself to this task of resting calmly and waiting in hopeful anticipation of that future day. Habakkuk, of course, is following the instruction that God told him to record in chapter 2. The faithful remnant are told that this revelation of my deliverance, he says, awaits an appointed time. You people of Judah, godly though you may be, cannot hasten it. No. Now, it may seem to you as if it will never come, the Lord says, but it will, because my promise is certain. It will come to pass in due time, in my time, says the Lord. And so the Lord knows that such assurances are necessary because we're just not very good at quietly waiting, are we? We are impatient creatures. But as we'll see, that's precisely the reason why such times of waiting in trouble are good for us. Well, Habakkuk's commitment to quietly awaiting is astounding in light of verse 17. He has seen the future, and it isn't pretty. The prophet describes the devastating conditions that await Judah. He outlines the dire circumstances in which his own quiet waiting must occur. It will be 70 some odd years before the deliverance comes. There will be a long time of quiet waiting. And before the day of God's wondrous deliverance comes, he must live through the horrendously appalling conditions that would befall Judah whenever Babylon destroys Jerusalem. So what will it be like in the post-invasion Judah? Well, he tells us in the text, doesn't he? It'll be fig trees without blossoms, vines without fruit, olive trees without olives, fields that produce no crops, pens without sheep and goats, and stalls with no cattle. I think most people today have a difficult time relating to Habakkuk's devastating description here. We're not touched by these things. We live in an age of unprecedented abundance with an excessive measure of creature comforts. Even the poor live better in our day than they did than kings did in days past. It's true. Most people don't grow their own food. 
They buy it at the supermarket. I do, right? And if some disaster ruins the fruit orchards in California or there's a major crop failure across the plains, we don't go hungry. We just pay a little more for our food. You know, between 2004 and 2007, mad cow disease cost the U.S. cattle ranchers about $11 billion. I had a hard time believing that when I read that article. But the effect on the average American? A little less selection in the meat department and about a 10% increase in the price of beef. And whenever COVID shut down the meat processing plants, we didn't go without, did we? Did you miss a meal because of that? I didn't. The chickens were maybe a little scrawnier and maybe a little more money, but if you wanted chickens, you could still get them, right? And and most recently, we saw a few empty shelves in our grocery stores due to supply chain issues, we're told. But I can tell you this, no one starved as a result, right? You might have to forego your favorite dish, but there was still an embarrassing abundance of food in those stores. It might not be what you liked, but it was there, and you could eat it. Well, see, that wasn't the case in post-invasion Judah. What Habakkuk describes here is a real crisis, because the voracious Babylonians descended upon Judah like a plague of locusts. They recklessly stripped the fruit from whatever trees and vines managed to survive their onslaught. Scorched earth occupied the land where fields once produced abundant crops. They confiscated the livestock that were worth confiscating, leaving only the weak and sickly. And so it didn't matter if you had money in post-invasion Jerusalem. There was nothing to buy. And that's the way Habakkuk characterizes the ruins of Judah. I like the way he begins here because he starts with what we might refer to, according to Scripture, as the choicest affairs. Figs and grapes and olives were a luxury. You didn't need them to survive. So at worst, their absence would be an inconvenience. But it didn't stop there. It wasn't just that you couldn't get figs, olives, or fruit. It was grain and livestock as well. And that's another matter, isn't it? Because those were the staples. Those were the essentials. Without crops, there was no bread. There was no cereal. There was no vegetables. Without livestock, there was no milk or mutton or wool. And even when the land recovered, there would be no oxen to plow the fields. And the only form of transportation you would have were your own two feet. That's the world in post-invasion Judah. You know, people today panic at the first sign of inconvenience. Isn't it true? Whenever COVID first hit, on the news, I saw videos of people coming to blows over a package of tissue. (laughs) Toilet tissue was nowhere to be found. What are we going to do? The apocalypse is here, right? (laughs) What a spoiled people we are, right? Habakkuk faced real life-threatening circumstances. And so this, I see, is a profound declaration of his faith that under these horrendous conditions, 
He will endure them quietly as he waits for the day of deliverance. No complaining to the Lord. There's no blaming anyone. There's no grumbling. He will quietly and peacefully wait for that day. You know, perhaps he remembers how the Israelites angered the Lord during the 40 years in the wilderness. And um, Roy read a passage for us this morning from that. And again, the children of Israel, you, you know the story, they complained at the first hint of hunger. And so God sent them manna. But then they grew tired of manna, so the Lord sent them quail. They had so much quail that they began to become nauseous on it. And then as they journeyed through the wilderness, after a few hours without water, they were a belly aching that they were parched. So God either purified contaminated water or he provided water from a rock. Now, these are the people that God freed from slavery and then delivered them from Pharaoh's hand through the parted waters of the Red Sea. Clearly, he didn't bring them into the wilderness to die. Could they not trust him for a moment with a little hunger, with a little thirst? And Moses actually tells the people, as they were preparing after 40 years to go into the promised land, he actually reminds them, listen, God led you through that dry and barren wilderness for a purpose. He gave you water in a parched land so you would know that it is from him that your needs are provided. He fed them with strange, unknown food, all to humble them and test them, says Moses. Will they trust me, God says. And then Moses adds, and it was for your own good. It was what you needed. It's the process of sanctification. Well, that's what the Lord will do for the faithful remnant during the days of affliction in Habakkuk's time. That's what he's promised. And so Habakkuk will not panic. He won't complain. He has resigned himself to the righteous will of God, and he knows that he will be able to endure the day of trouble because he now understands what it means to be righteous. The righteous are those who live by faith in the unfailing God. And the Lord has promised to preserve all who trust in him. Now, he didn't say it would be comfortable. He didn't say he would supply whatever you want. But he will supply what you need. That's what he promises. And so the godly remnant will survive. You know, it's difficult for us to accept times of trouble as being for our own good. It's hard, isn't it? Just like a child, it's difficult for them to reason in their minds how that discipline is good for them. They disobey and they think they should just get away with it. It's okay, right? Just forget it. Just just let it go, right? Come on, Dad. Right? Let it pass just this one time. Let it pass one time, then it becomes two, and then it becomes three, and then... It never ends. Discipline is for our own good. We have no character without it. That's what's wrong with many in the generation now coming up, is there was no discipline. 
And that creates a chaotic people without any self-control. And so that's what we need. We need this from God. He knows what we need. And isn't this precisely what Scripture says? Paul says, our light and momentary afflictions are working in us a far greater weight of glory. And therefore, he could go on to say, I consider then that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. The trials and troubles of this life cannot defeat God's people. Because no, in all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And what's more? We're promised that the days of affliction won't last forever. Sometimes we think that they'll never end, right? But they will. This too will pass. As Peter said, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself will restore, he will confirm, he will strengthen, he will establish you. That's the promise. Well, Habakkuk had come to realize that this time of purging for Judah was best. While God would be ridding Judah of the apostates, he would also be using those same afflictions to strengthen the faith of his people. And so the prophet says, I will endure the coming season of trouble quietly, calmly, steadfastly, without panicking, without impatience. I will wait patiently for deliverance. You see, as Peter says, the trying of our faith is a good thing. He says it's more precious than gold. And so Habakkuk commits himself to living quietly before the Lord our God in all righteousness while Babylon temporarily rules over God's people. And this reminds me of Paul's admonition to Timothy. We are to pray for those in authority that we might lead quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and dignity. Now, this has nothing to do with how righteous the rulers are. Whenever Paul wrote those words, Nero was emperor of Rome. He was the highest authority in the world at that time. Nebuchadnezzar was a violent, arrogant, self-absorbed idolater. But that didn't matter to God. He sits on the highest throne... And he's far above all principalities and powers. And they have no authority, Scripture says, except that which he has granted them. And he will let them play out their moment of sin. And then he will unseat them. And they will be brought to account. They will be brought to account. That's a part of the message of Habakkuk is, fear not, these wicked Babylonians will be brought to account. And so indeed, to lead quiet and peaceful lives under the authority of an ungodly regime. I think that's where we are today, isn't it? Now, we have no record of how it looked for Habakkuk to quietly wait under Babylonian oppression. But we do have examples. Examples of Daniel and the three Hebrew children. um, If you remember them, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, or as they're often known, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were their Babylonian names. Well, these were all very bright, capable, well-educated young men who were taken in the first wave of captivity into Babylon because Nebuchadnezzar saw something potential in them. He wanted them to serve in his palace. These are bright men. These are men who would be able to do good things. 
So he instructed his servants to feed them his menu. But some of the food was unclean. Do you remember the story? Daniel and his friends resolved not to defile themselves, not to disobey God. But the official in charge was afraid that if they didn't eat the king's food, they would be weak and malnourished, and the king would not approve. Well, we can take example from Daniel. He didn't defy the king's command. He respectfully proposed a test. He said, for 10 days, please give us nothing but vegetables and water. And then, he tells the servant, compare how we fared with those who eat the royal food and then base your decision on that outcome. Well, the Lord gave them favor and the test was on. And after 10 days, Daniel and his company looked healthier and better nourished than those who dined on the royal cuisine. But notice, they weren't disrespectful to authority. They didn't panic, but they didn't compromise either. They quietly and calmly trusted in the Lord, and he preserved them. Of course, that's one example, but it didn't always go that way. In his hubris, Nebuchadnezzar made an impressive image of gold, if you remember the story. Ninety feet tall and nine feet wide. And he assembled all of the officials to the dedication of this idol. And when the music played, everyone was ordered to fall down and worship this image or else be thrown into the fiery furnace. Well, a group of astrologers who were jealous of the Hebrews. He told the king that there were certain Jews in their midst that refused to worship God and the image he had set up. The king was furious, so he summons the three Hebrew children, and he issued an ultimatum. He says, listen, if you don't worship this image that I have made, if you don't fall down before him and worship him, you will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. He says, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Do you see his hubris? Nebuchadnezzar thought he was it. He's a God. He should be worshipped. Who's going to deliver you from my hand? Don't you know that I am the highest authority in the land today? No one is above me in all the earth. What God will be able to spare you from my hand? Well, I love their response. King Nebuchadnezzar. We don't need to justify ourselves to you. If we're thrown into that blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. And we're confident that he will. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know your majesty. We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Listen, there is no hint of panic in their response nor is there any disrespect to the king. They referred to him as your majesty. So they calmly stand fast, fast in their faith, confident in God, and they stood fast in quietness of spirit. Of course, you know the rest of the story. The king was so irate that he tells his servants, I want you to go and gin up that furnace. I want you to heat it seven times over. And then he ordered these three Hebrews to be bound and cast into the fire. 
And the blaze was so hot, the scripture says, it devoured those who were given the task of throwing them in. So they didn't survive. But then the king was astonished as he looked into that furnace, and there he saw them unbound and unharmed, walking freely in the fire. And what's more astonishing is, did we not just throw three in? There's someone with them. And he looks like a divine figure. Now, this was quite likely the pre-incarnate Christ who was with them to deliver them. Well, the astonished king called out into the furnace, and he said to them, Come out, come out and stand before me. And then he says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted so much in him that they were willing to give up their own lives rather than worship or serve any other God except their own God. And so in this whole episode, God was glorified. And rather than being executed, these three Hebrews were promoted. But they endured quietly through this time of trial. No panic. There was no anxiety Their trust was calm and secure. And they were not disrespectful to those in authority. But they would not disobey God. And then, of course, there's Daniel's deliverance from the lion's den, right? Jealous officials conspired against him. They conned the king into issuing an edict that no one should pray for 30 days to anyone but you, O King Darius. And whoever is caught praying, put in your edicts, O king, if they're caught praying to any other god or anyone else, that they be thrown into the lion's den. Uh, These men, these cunning men, knew Daniel's character. And so they thought this is the way to get him. But this edict also appealed to the king's vanity. Pray to me? (laughs) For 30 days, everyone's going to be praying to me. So he issued the decree. And when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, the scripture says, he didn't panic. He wasn't overcome with anxiety. He was unfazed. He went to his home, the scripture says, and continued his practice of praying three times a day from an open window where everyone could see him. He didn't try to hide his commitment to the Lord. And those malicious officials, they were spying on Daniel, just waiting. And so they caught him in the act of praying, and they brought him before the king. Still, Daniel, he didn't panic. In fact, the scripture says that the king was himself greatly distressed because he favored Daniel. Isn't that amazing? It's Daniel who's being threatened to be thrown into the lion's den, but he's not anxious at all. The one who's anxious is the king. King Darius tried his best, we're told, to find a way out for Daniel. But the conspirators kept pressing him. And they said to him, did you not issue an irrevocable edict? That was enough. The king regrettably then said, yes, okay. And he gave the order and said to Daniel as he went, may the God you continually serve rescue you. Well, the next morning, Darius, he could hardly sleep the night, and the next morning, Darius rushed to the lion's den, and he called out in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you continually worship, has he rescued you? 
And Daniel, he heard Daniel's voice. May the king live forever. The Lord sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth. I have been found innocent, your majesty. And then Darius had Daniel's accusers thrown into that lion's den along with their families. And the scripture says they were killed before they ever reached the bottom of the den. That means that the lions were poised and ready to kill. It was a miracle that Daniel survived. But notice Daniel's response all the way through this, respectful of the authority that was over him, but unwilling to obey that which would break the commandment of God. Now, we see the same posture of humility in the disciples of our Savior, right? Peter tells us to honor the king, doesn't he? Paul tells us to respect earthly authority, Romans 13. The only time we are permitted to disobey is whenever their commands are in direct violation of God's revealed will and his commands. But even then, we should be respectful and be quiet and peaceful, not anxious, as we stand steadfastly for the truth. That's the way Peter and John were when they were brought before the Sanhedrin, and they were commanded to stop preaching in Christ's name. And they calmly and respectfully said, Tell us whether we should obey God or you. We'll leave it with you. Of course, there's no self-respecting Pharisee or Sadducee who would say, oh, you must obey, obey us rather than God. Right? But he was respe- they were respectful. And then whenever Paul was brought before the high priest or the Roman authorities, he never compromised his stand, not once. But he did speak calmly and respectfully to them. He used the titles of respect that were expected of us, uh, one under their authority to use. And so as we close this morning, I want you to see that we should be following this example to live quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and dignity, and we can do so whenever our trust is firmly rooted in God. As the three Hebrew children said, we have no need to justify our obedience to God. <laughs> Sometimes we are anxious to justify ourselves before the world. We don't need to. It's God's word. It's what he tells us. And we should be able to calmly, not angrily, that's their spirit. Notice the spirit of tolerance today. They've preached tolerance for such a long time. What is tolerance? It's hatred of the enemy. That's what it is. If you don't agree with them, then you're hated. You have no right to speak. And that's their definition of tolerance. Tolerance is you agree with me. Right? But Christians, on the other hand, we, can, we don't have to answer hate with hate. As Paul says, we do good to those. Right? We don't return evil for evil. We return evil with good. And so this is what we are called to do. And so Paul, as he reminded the Philippians, and I want us to be reminded this morning, we need not be frightened by those who oppose us. The opposition that we receive, Paul says, is a sign to those who oppose us of their impending judgment. And at the same time, it is a sign to us of our salvation. That's something to hold fast to. So how do we live quietly and with peace in times of trouble? By trusting 
in the God who has promised to preserve us and to keep us. And one day, he has promised to bring us into glory. And so my prayer for us, for God's people in this day, is that he would grant us the strength and the confidence that we need that we might live quietly as we wait for the deliverance in the day of trouble. For our God is a faithful God, and he will deliver us. And to him be all glory forever and ever. Amen.